Hello and welcome to episode 58 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav, back in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Welcome back, Stanislav. It's good to see your face again. How many TCG player envelopes did you have waiting for you after two weeks? You know I only ever support the local game store, Shane. Hmm. Yeah, that's only you, Shane. <laughs> oh man. Well hold on. I saw the I saw your order that you got today, Dave. So Yeah. Was that TCG though, David? No, I only buy from one certain vendor that will have to sponsor us to get a name drop on here. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather, Dave. Harberger. Stan, it's so great to see you again. The guy that we had on last week was just really could only replace so much of you. The guy you had on last week keeps a beard but shaves his mustache, which is the opposite of what I sometimes do. That's true. You, <laughs> you often have a mustache and no beard. Combined, you're the perfect magic player. <laughs> Finally, the man that bled red, Zach Colhan. I'm happy to announce my doctor told me I have a very rare condition. I have hemoglobin. Only one in seven billion people. Wait, or I'm one out of seven billion. I'm one in seven billion? One of those. I thought your doctor said that you had hemoglobin. Zach, if I know anything about you. I can have two different things. All right, Dave. Two things can be true. And I'm both. On this week's episode, we break down some of the coolest new lists popping up in Modern and Pioneer 5.0 deck dumps. Then we dive into our 2020 goals as Magic players and talk about how to set effective goals for Magic and beyond. Finally, and wind down, I'll be explaining where I've been for the last two weeks. But first, some housekeeping. Thanks to The Last God, Scott K, Jonah S, and Brandon L for joining the Dive Down Nation on Patreon. Really appreciate your support and love to see the nation growing. If you'd like to support our show and join the Dive Down Nation, you can check us out over at patreon.com slash the dive down. And as always, we're brought to you in part by manatraders.com. Uh, we all use them. We all love them. You can get 15% off your first three months of Magic the Gathering online rental while using sign-up code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word. There's an affiliate link in our show notes you can click on, too. Traders is honestly the best way to play whatever deck you want on Magic Online. I love just switching between whatever deck I want, just swapping a few cards here and there without going to the bots. It's awesome. Check it out. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to David who's at the news desk this week. Well, for this week's breakdown, I thought it would be fun for us to take a trip to the Spice Station. Isn't it normally a spice rack? Are you telling me this rack is so large it has some sort of transportation system to and from it? Yeah, absolutely. It's got an entire hub. It's the Spice Hub. I always thought Spice Rack was trademarked by Turn What Thoughtsies. Oh, is that a thing they say? <laughs> yeah, man. It's... Oh, Aaron, I'm so sorry if that's true. Totally missed that. Well, we use the Spice Station. Yeah, that's why we have a Spice Station. I think it's something from Dune, the Spice Station. I have for no apologies. Yeah, if you spin the Spice Rack like quickly enough, it has gener uh, it generates a, a gravitational field on the outside, so you can like walk in your Spice Station. Does it make sense? That does make sense. And this is... Oh, what are those called? Something Rings. Is this related to the Tashi station? You can have fun with your friends later. Right now we have a podcast to do. <laughs> All right. 
this is a lot of setup for me to say it's been kind of a weird week in Magic because we had a new set come out, but there haven't been any premier eternal paper events quite yet. We've got a couple coming up this weekend. But as usual, the grinders of MTGO have been hard at work getting the new cards from Theros Beyond Death out into the world. So we thought we'd scour the events of Magic Online, 5-0 dumps, prelims, challenges, etc. for a few decks that are using the new cards in the most interesting ways to us. So I'm going to start with Modern. And uh, Modern still feels like it's a metagame that's settling a little bit since the massive bans of a couple weeks ago. I think people are still trying to figure out what they can do, what they can try. A lot of the kind of uh, 5-0 deck dumps of the last couple of weeks have been really pushing the envelope with lots of new new things in them. Uh, there seem to be some new strategies with old cards, some old strategies improved by a new card, and some new strategies caused by new cards. So it's kind of like all kinds of different stuff is going on here. But when I was looking through the list, the first few decks that I wanted to check out were bring to everybody's attention. So we're going to start with a modern challenge from this weekend. The sixth place modern challenge deck was a Titan Field deck piloted by Tundislav. Tundislav? Stoa? <laughs> Is that a cousin of yours, maybe? or Perhaps. A long-lost brethren. Perhaps. Brat. So it is a Titan field deck with four Dryad of the Elysian Grove, along with one Uro, kind of for that extra value. But the main thing here, it seems to be Dryad of the Elysian Grove. Have you guys seen this deck? Have you played against it? I keep hearing about it. I have played against this one just with Uro, though, not with uh, the Dryad of the Grove. And Uro in that deck has just been very good. The gaining the life, the putting lands into play, it was good enough to beat me. And I just imagine that mana fixing is also good. Absolutely. I So I'm going to read Dryad of the Elysian Grove in case people forgot what it is. It is a two generic, one green, two four. It is a enchantment creature, Nymph. And the text on it says, you may play an additional land on each of your turns. And lands you control are every basic land type in addition to their other types. So the thing that's interesting about this is that it's kind of a mix of uh, Azusa. It's like half an Azusa and a uh, Prismatic Omen. And so what it's really allowed these decks to do is add an entire different angle of attack to them for free. Because, you know, we're all used to Titan decks that bring up Valakit and do a bunch of damage with mountains. And we're used to decks that kind of go a different way with Field of the Dead and bring up a bunch of lands and make a bunch of zombie tokens. And what happens now is there's really no downside to them taking both of those strategies, putting them together into one deck, and just kind of going for it from there. And so they have a two of Field of the Dead and a two of Valakit, the Molten Pinnacle, to just kind of go ahead and make primetime do all the bad things that primetime can do. Question. If you have a blood moon on the battlefield and your opponent casts Dryad of the Elysian Grove, does that mean all of their basic mountains now tap for five colors of mana? Yes. What happens if they have Dryad out and then you play the blood moon? Yes. Judge. <laughs> Zach, this, this is one of those things that I feel like a blood moon layer guy would know. I need to look at Dryad of the Elysian Grove to see what the phrasing on is. The static text is, lands you control are every basic land type in addition to their other types. Okay, gotcha. So then, uh, because the phrasing on Blood Moon is non-basic lands are mountains, it depends on which one came down first. I see. So that would mean that the effect that came down second would overrule the effect that came down first. Gotcha. Yeah, so Dryad first and Blood Moon second means the basic lands are mountains. Blood Moon first, Dryad second means Dryad, like beats out the Blood Moon, all lands are all basic land types. All your mountains tap for Wuberg. I don't think it will undo things like Cavern of Souls or, you know, other utility lands. It just prevents Blood Moon from nerfing 
greedy color strategies. So the last thing I wanted to bring up about this deck is that I think it is really worth noting that in the modern challenge that went this week, Dryad of the Elysian Grove was the second most popular creature in that event. That's impressive. And it was the sixth most played card overall. It appeared in amulet decks here and there and also appears in Titan Shift decks here and there. But it did not appear in the deck that won the challenge, which was an Amulet Titan deck piloted by Punt and Wine. They decided to go with just kind of like standard uh, Amulet that are, as it already existed. Well, I think the talk of the town is that Titan is one of the best decks post-bans, apropos of this new technology. Great. So why don't we move on to the next deck? So this is the weirdest deck I've seen in a very long time in Modern. This is from a 5-0 in the Modern League on January 24th. The title of the deck is just UBG, as we know means Saltai, and it was piloted by Nefitz. And here are some of the cards in this deck. I'm just going to read them to you and see what you all think about it. (laughs) Four Gilded Goose. Sure. Okay. Four Uro Titans, Titan of Nature's Wrath. All right, a new card. That's a good excuse for us to talk about it. Three Vessel of Nascency. Do any of you know what Vessel of Nascency does? Oh, sure. Okay. (laughs) and finally the last card that appears as a four of in this deck that really got my attention was four zers weirding Mm -hmm. i'm going to read the text of zers weirding here so everybody knows what it is it is a staple from my days as a young man playing during ice age block of every bad deck i ever tried to make work uh so zers weirding is an enchantment it costs three colorless and one blue Players play with their hands revealed. Whenever a player would draw a card, instead reveal it. Any other player may pay two life to put that card into its owner's graveyard. If no one does, that player then draws the card. What is this card? What is this card doing? <laughs> it feels like a like a combo piece. Like you would only play a card like this because it's doing something game winning and broken and synergistic, right? I I actually feel like they're trying to play it as like a lock piece. When I look at this deck, I think it's like we're trying to dredge a little bit. It's kind of like a it's like a Saltai dredge deck with Uro and even a card that has dredge two called Golgari Brown Scale. Ooh. That helps them fill their graveyard a little bit. And then maybe they get an advantage. They get Xur's Weirding down and they just start paying a bunch of life to to keep you from drawing cards that would kill them. I think it is fun that both Xur and his weirding are now part of strange modern fringe decks. I hope this lasts. I mean, I hope this lasts too. I'd love to see this come back. There are a lot of spicy two ofs and one ofs in here. There's a one forbidden alchemy. Ooh, a trade binder deck. Very cool. Yeah, totally. So I thought this was an interesting one to take a look at. If you want to see something that is super strange that showed up in the 5 deck dump lists. I find it amazing that a deck with this many cards designed to fill either your or the opponent's graveyard that there's a single drown in the lock. I feel like that has to be more powerful. Yeah, and also, there's no Thought Scour in this deck. They're playing Vessel of Nascency over Thought Scour, which was kind of confusing to me as well. Listen, sometimes you look at your trade binder before a big event, and you go, (laughs) I don't have Thought Scours? I have four Vessels? Vessels? Vassals. (laughs) Vessels. (laughs) So, how does this deck not run Tarmogoyf? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. It was clearly a meme. Someone just wanted to trophy with some nonsense. Well, they did it, and they caught our attention. And stay tuned for next week's episode of Zer's Weirding. If you're listening to this, put a dive down in the sideboard. <laughs> then we'll know that you're safe, Nephits. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
If you need us to come and save you, just put one dive down in the sideboard and Zach will come and find you, Nefitz. All right, well, one kind of larger meta deck thing that I think is worth noting since we just talked about a deck that has four Uros in it is that it looks to me like the Simic Urza deck that was running Oko and Mox Opal and all that kind of stuff has just picked up four Uro and carried on on its uh, merry way. Basically, I got waxed by it a couple of times on Shadow in the last week or so and uh, wasn't thrilled about that, but I guess the people who paid all that money for all those Urzas are probably happy about it, so... Yeah, now they just have to pay like $20 for Euro or 45 tickets on Magic Online. Yeah, exactly. All right, the last deck I wanted to bring up in Modern is Green-White Heliod Combo. So the, the, the list that I have here is from a deck dump on that same deck dump, January 24th, and it was piloted by Spoon Manoron. Spoon Manoron! <laughs> Maybe it is. Come together with your plans. Um, so this is a combination of the Devoted Druid, Vizier of Remedies combo, plus Spike Feeder, Heliod, Walking Ballista, all kinds of different things to kind of make that Heliod combo a, a second way to win from a Devoted Druid deck. So it seems like this is the place that that Heliod combo is appearing in Modern is as a supplement to, to Druid. Um, a lot of them say that they're Abzan decks, but they're really just kind of the Abzan cards are really just kind of there for maybe a sack outlet like Viscerous Seer or something like that. But the po- most popular place is for them to be in green white with all the good like creature searches that they have. And there's enough of these builds happening right now on Magic Online that there were three different uh, Heliot combo decks in this same deck dump. Yeah, I got to say, as someone who has played Devoted Druid strategies in the past, that these decks are fascinating to me. I love how many different combos they have, and I love what cards like Ranger Captain of Eos can do. You know, to seek up your, to seek up your Giver of Runes, to seek up your uh, Viscerous here. And I think that with things like Finale of Devastation, Once Upon a Time, Eladami's Call, you just have so many different ways to piece together game-winning combos that you're going to be in a good shape, even as a beatdown deck. I think too. I do also think it's interesting that Ranger of Captain can tutor up the Walking Ballista, which, you know, Ranger Captain doesn't tutor up any of the other combo pieces in Devoted Combo decks. So it's nice to have this new target for a tutor. Yeah, I did kind of miss the most important tutor target. So thanks, Dan. Hey, you're welcome. Fair enough. Uh, there was a fourth build, actually, that had Heliod in it, which was essentially Soul Sisters with Heliod, which is really cool because it synergizes with creatures coming into play to be able to put counters on them, so it makes it a little bit faster because then you don't have to activate Heliod. It also had four of the much maligned Modern Horizons card, Force of Virtue. I think Force of Virtue is really cool here, and like it just sort of clicked for me that what this lets you do is... You can only have a ballista with one counter on it and remove it and it won't die because it's a one one because of force of virtue. So you don't have to get it so big. And like granted, you know, if they can do something, they can still kill it. But you no longer have to have two counters or it doesn't die. And this creates that cool window for you. And it pumps up soul creatures, so why not? Sister and mother leader. No, that's a great point, Zach. I didn't even realize that until you said it just now that this is certainly a way to help the combo come off faster. I thought that they were just running Force of Virtue as like a cute value package with Squadron Hawk, but I think it makes a ton of sense to be like, my Ballista, I can just pay for two mana now. Yeah, I've been watching people play different versions of the Heliod Ballista combo in Pioneer on streams over the past week, and it seems pretty slow. 
when you have to have two counters in some way, shape, or form on your walking ballista to get going. And so having Force of Virtue, like Zach was saying, to provide that 1-1 base power and toughness certainly seems smart to me. A friend of mine has been testing with builds, I believe, in Modern, maybe a little bit in Pioneer, of the Heliod, you know, walking ballista combo. And what I, I think what, part of what I heard from them I've been reading online and seeing, you know, the same thing Shane's interacting with is that the the cards of the package are really better when they are just in sort of a grindy mid-range deck that can go off as opposed to an all-in combo. And that's another thing where I think the Force of Virtue can really help is that it helps, you know, protect this combo, make it better, but also you can just beat down with right creatures sometimes, and that's okay. Absolutely. Last couple of notes on Modern. Um, Ox of Agonis and Underworld Breeze are definitely starting to pop up and appear in different places. Uh, none of them are hitting too high as far as like the um, the premier events go right now, but there's definitely a lot of people trying to play Dredge with Ox in it, and certainly um, I think that we're going to be hearing from that card some more. Oh, they're not trying. They're doing. They are doing. It's just not, it's not at the top of any of the preliminaries or anything quite yet from what I've seen. Uh, the last note about Modern, just to check in on one of our favorite... Magic Online Pilots just burned 420, and they 5-0'd a modern preliminary recently with Slivers. Why not? Pretty sweet. No new cards in there, but I feel like if Slivers is starting to do okay, there must be some fun things around the corner for modern. So everybody, get back in. Come on back in. The water's good. I've been playing a lot of modern lately. Pioneer's fine, but modern is looking fun again, too, I think. Awesome. Good to hear. So... Quick check-in on Pioneer for the second half of the breakdown here. Uh, similar thing. We just kind of looked around and tried to find some interesting things. There was one big event that we can talk about for a minute. But the main thing I wanted to say about Pioneer right now, or what's going on with Pioneer right now, is that I think it's about to get really interesting because we have three Grand Prix and three player tour events in the Pioneer format coming up in the next two weekends. So between um, events that I believe are in... Uh, there's one in Japan, there's one in Belgium, and there's one in... Arizona, which I know is not a country. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a Grand Prix and a Players Tour event in each one of those places. So I think what's going to happen is Pioneer has been sort of left alone. There's been a lot of people playing it, and there's been a lot of pro attention kind of on it, but there hasn't really been the incentive for pros to really get in there and figure out what they can do with the format yet. So I think we're really going to see if there is some stabilization coming up in the metagame or if people are going to show up with a bunch of different decks. I think if there's something that's really, really broken and there's a pro team really putting some time into it, we might find something that all of a sudden really leaps ahead from a tier two or tier three deck to being a tier one deck. Um, but I think that, that that's something to keep an eye on is that this is one of those moments where a, a format can go from being the Wild West to suddenly being a little bit more solved. Yeah, I'm both really interested in seeing what happens next weekend at the International you know, for us in the States, international uh, GPs and regional PTs, because that's going to heavily impact what I see at Phoenix, where I'll be with a, a couple other members of the Dive Down Nation. We're going to have a really good time, I think. But honestly, that week window between the first set of regional PTs and the second is going to be really weird. It's either going to heavily inform what happens or there's going to be like a major response to what happens. I don't think we've really ever seen anything like that, where we have two weekends of really important events happening back to back like that. Well, this is the first time that they've split pro level events into different regions. So I think it's going to be really interesting, like you said, because of that. So there was one large mock style tournament with a ton of streamers on Sunday of last week. So we'll be talking about a few decks from there. This is the Pioneer Showcase Challenge. The top eight after Swiss was, well, the deck that won the event 
was a kind of low-to-the-ground mono-red deck. It was like someone kind of took the chonky red deck that we talked about last week, reduced the curve a bunch, got rid of Glorybringer, brought in Monastery Swift Spear, and brought in uh, also Abbot of Carol Keep as a four-of, which is pretty wild to see as well. They're back. I know, right? Just like that. Um, The second-place deck was a blue-white spirits list. And then after that, there was a seven-win deck on mono-black aggro, a seven-win deck on blue-white control, a seven-win deck on uh, blue-red insole artifact, a 6-2 deck on chunky red. And then finally, the two decks that I wanted to talk about for a minute from this, because they use some new cards, is uh, Daniel Garcia at 6-2 and two in the top eight with an Inverter of Truth combo deck. So... People might not be familiar with this deck yet. So the way the deck works is kind of built around the card Inverter of Truth, which is a Oath of the Gatewatch card, two black black for a Devoid, which means it has no color, flying, 6-6. But the text that is interesting to us here is when Inverter of Truth enters the battlefield, exile all cards from your library face down. Then shuffle all cards from your graveyard into your library. So the way this deck can then win is with Thassa's Oracle, which we talked about, I believe, last week, maybe a couple weeks ago, which is they look at the top X cards of your library, where X is your devotion to blue, and then you put up to one of them on top of your library, the rest in the bottom of your library, and in a random order. But the important text here is if X is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library, you win the game. So you can get your library size down nice and small. You have some backup win cons with Jace Wielder of Mysteries, which has the static text. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. It's essentially a control deck with a lot of fatal pushes, thought seizes, collective brutality, murderous cut, you know, dig through time, discovery, dispersal, things like that to slow the game down and then get to the point where it can win the game with a really small library, either through Jace or Thassa's Oracle. Yeah, so keep an eye on that deck. Um, the, the last deck I wanted to talk about from the top eight here was that uh, a deck piloted by Pasta Hemo. Uh, a person who went 8x in the Swiss and was the leading seed going into the tournament. And they were playing a mono-white devotion Heliod combo deck here in Pioneer. So Heliod is showing up in Modern and also in Pioneer. The thing that was really interesting about this is that um, it's kind of like a beatdown deck with with cards like Benelish Marshall. I think Benelish Marshall might do a similar thing to what Zach was pointing out about the uh, the Force of Virtue was playing in the deck in Modern, which is that it adds plus one, plus one to all your creatures, so you get to play your uh, Walking Ballista for cheaper. But really, this is a bunch of kind of white cards that are knights and that draw other cards like Knight of the White Orchid, Militia Bugler, things like that. It runs a four-pack of Collected Company as the only non-white card. And then it has basically a go-wide plan to beat down or Heliod the Sun Sun Crown and Walking Ballista to win with a combo. I think this is a really cool deck as well. I think that it's really starting to look like I have to recant on my call that Heliod won't be good enough to see play because it feels like people are finding ways to make it work. So I think the devotion aspect to this deck is really powerful. You have so many double and triple white pip cards in this deck. Like if you have a Nykthos out and a board presence of some sort, you can generate a lot of mana, which overcomes some of the inefficiencies of some of the white cards, especially almost all of them are in the sideboard here because it has 
removal options like Quarantine Field, which is a white, white XX card. So you want a ton of mana to use that. And if you can, it's extremely powerful. Let's you play uh, forecasting cost uh, conditional wraths like Dusk Till Dawn. And Dusk is really cool because it gets rid of creatures with power three or greater. And so the lamentation of any white mage is that, yeah, my creatures seem to top out at three power. But if you can run Dusk, that's certainly helpful. Lamentation of the White Mage is my favorite Metallica B-side. It's very good. It was really something to watch them write that on some kind of monster. I didn't think it was going to come together. Uh, so we have two more decks to talk about really quickly before we get out of the, the breakdown. The first one is Breach, Lotus Field, Storm. <laughs> which the list that I have went... 4-1 in a prelim, but let's face it, this deck is everywhere and everybody is complaining about it. And basically, it is Lotus Field combo plus Underworld Breach to kind of get some value out of the graveyard and a card from Return to Ravnica called Chronic Flooding that says uh, it's a one generic and a blue for an enchant land that says whenever enchanted land becomes tap, its controller puts the top three cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. So essentially, whenever you tap your Lotus Field to cast something, you get to mill all the cards that let you play another card with Underworld Breach. I just want to say that Chronic Flooding is one of those cards where if I was a younger player or a player not really enfranchised, I would think this was some sort of bad limited card that you put on an opponent's land to keep them from tapping it or something. But like now that I get that magic is full of degeneracy and combos, it's just hilarious that like, oh, no, of course, this perfectly enables this combo right here. Right. Yeah, Chronic Flooding is also my favorite Afro Man B side. <laughs> Shane, that was a better joke than mine, buddy. <laughs> so this deck is another deck that seems to win through Thassa's Oracle. That seems to be the only win condition that it has. It can bring in more effects like this with Jace Wielder of Mysteries in the sideboard. I don't know. I haven't played against this deck yet with this new power up in it. I think maybe Shane did the other day. Is that true? Well, I actually think Shane said something super interesting maybe last week that I've been thinking about ever since, which is this is the exact type of deck you don't want in Pioneer. And it almost seemed like you were disappointed that a type of strategy, this type of combo strategy has emerged already. Yeah, I kind of don't want to have to worry about combos like this that just seem sort of busted. The re the thing that I don't want is I don't want a turn four combo, honestly. I don't think many aggro decks in Pioneer can effectively kill on turn four with any reliability. And so seeing a, a combo deck that can go under an aggro deck with pretty good reliability is a bit frustrating. So something that can kill on turn four is a little bit iffy to me in Pioneer. A quick hypothetical, because normally what you're saying is the, the rock, paper, scissors circle is that aggro beats combo but loses to control, where a combo is able to beat control but lose to aggro. Or would you be okay in a world where those roles were flipped and like combo were fast decks, but you know weren't able to have a long game, weren't able to grind it out and lost to control, but did beat aggro decks? Yeah, I mean, I think that if a control deck is is built probably correctly, they're probably you know able to counter spell the most important spells that underworld breach decks might play. But then they go to the graveyard, which is iffy, so you have to be able to exile things from the grave. So that's kind of a pain. Two words for you, my friend. Three, three words. Main board, rest in peace. That's four words, but one word and a card. Well, if we're in that world, no one wants to live in that world, right? No, that's fair enough. 
I actually think there were some people running mainboard, uh, whatever that new lantern is from Theros over the weekend to be able to combat this deck, I'm assuming. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think I saw uh, Gab Nassif running it. I think he had a couple in the main, a couple on the side, just as kind of like, you know, a value cycler that can also do some uh, side benefits for you. So, yeah, I think this deck can work. I mean, I was running mono black and I had some Leyline of the Voids. And I remember saying in the, the Slack, I was like, well, let's see if Leyline of the Void gets there. <laughs> and then 15 minutes later, it got there. All right. The last deck I have to talk about, since we have been talking about stuff that is maybe not too spicy, is a uh, final deck that I found on the 5 deck dump on January 23rd for Pioneer that is under the title Abzan Relisticrats by a pilot named Unique. And here are the cards that are in it. Hunted Witness, Stitcher Supplier, Thraben Inspector, Cartel, Aristocrat, Cruel Celebrant, Seder Wayfinder, Voice of Resurgence, Zulaport Cutthroat, and Four Woe Strider, the new card from Theros Beyond Death that is a 3CMC Manalist Sack Outlet that has escaped. So it's a 3CMC 3-2 that says, when Rose Rider enters the battlefield, create an 0-1 white goat creature token, sacrifice another creature, scry one, and has escaped for three generic black-black exile foil other cards. Comes back in with a plus one, with two plus one, plus one counters on it. Plus it has Rally the Ancestors, Return the Ranks, and a couple other cards. So I thought the deck was sweet because it is basically on the plan of fill your graveyard with stuff, uh, get some early value creatures out, have them die, then rally everything back, sack it to kill it to Cruel Celebrant and Zulaport Cutthroat to do a big kind of drain gain a la Blood Artist and just beat your opponent that way. It seemed like a really awesome uh, kind of rally, rally aristocrats kind of plan. Did you guys hear the most recent episode of the Pro Points podcast? where they did their Theros ratings. And not only was Wostrider the first card they talk about, it was essentially the card by which they measured every other card that they discussed with only Uro being better. Wow. Yeah, I actually didn't get to the end of that episode, but I remember that and they were kind of like saying, you know, is this better? Is this worse? And I'm, it's kind of amazing that only Uro was better. Yeah. And what uh, one of the takeaways for me from the discussion between Sam Black and Mike Segrist on that show was that this card potentially has the potential to create a new archetype and and more or less give aristocrat-style decks a home in Pioneer. And maybe that's what we're beginning to see happen. Yeah, I think, Stan, is it true that they were talking in a standard lens in that episode? I remember it being mostly standard-specific, but... On the contrary, I think it was mostly Pioneer because they were getting ready for all the premiere events. So Stan, you say, you know, make Aristocrats decks viable in Pioneer, but I think there already is sort of one that's viable, and I think the cat combo is in a lot of different shells, and I see it all the time. There's not a ton of 5-0s for it, but I do see it, and, you know, it is a deck that I face quite a lot online, and people seem to like a lot. Not to interrupt, Zach, but do you mind telling us what the cat combo is? I don't think I'm familiar with it. Oh, sure. So in this combo or really just grindy strategy, you can use Witch's Oven to sacrifice Cauldron Familiar to get a food, and then you sacrifice the food to bring back Cauldron Familiar, and you drain your opponents using things like Blood Artifacts, you know, Zua Cutthroat, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a slower, grindier deck, but I have seen sort of that engine power a Black Red Aristocrats Rally deck. 
So I, I, I have seen that shell exist, and I think this just fits in really seamlessly. It's a free sack outlet that creates a creature and then can come back bigger later while also creating a creature. But it's interesting how I feel like time and time and time again, Pioneer is the format where all these cards that we've talked about wanting to be good in modern for Dave, Rally the Ancestors, is a card that is now showing up and powering these decks. And while my card of choice, Sarkon, is still not quite there in Pioneer, I think it's cool how for a lot of other cards that are on the fringe, they're, you know, creating things that wouldn't be possible or wouldn't be as powerful in modern. And that's really what taking a trip to the Spice Station is all about. <laughs> so I think these were some cool decks to talk about. Uh, sorry, the breakdown's a little long this week, but it felt like it was worth it to talk about some new cards the week after the set came out. Yeah, I mean, you might see some of these coming up in a upcoming Sleep Leave Heave episode. Who knows? Absolutely. That wraps up the breakdown for this week's episode. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we dive into our 2020 magic goals and maybe your goals too. Stay with us. <laughs> And we are back for the dive down portion of the show. One of the things we talked about earlier this year was setting some goals and thinking about ways that we could work on those goals and turn it into an episode. And so time has continued. It's arduous march forward. The month of January has already disappeared like so many tears in the rain. We thought it would be a good time to to think about our near and long-term goals, share them with each other, share them with you, talk about how we want to reach them. So instead of talking about meta decks or formats, we've picked a general sort of magic skill, a level up skill of some kind that interested us, did some thinking, some research, how to improve that particular strategic concept. So we'll do our typical round table. Each of us are going to lead a discussion and the hope of leveling up ourselves and all you listeners. Hashtag 2020 goals, right, guys? We're going to get these on Instagram, get them pushed out there through our influencer channels. Hashtag squad goals. Lizzo, get at us. Um, so first, I think, uh, Stan, I like yours because I definitely identify well with it. So I'm just going to make you go first, my friend. Thanks. I'm excited to go first since I haven't talked on mic in a while. Yeah, also, I miss your I miss your, your tone, your just your dulcet tones. You and my many fans. And one of the reasons I'm actually excited to talk first is because my goal is a bit unique from the ones you guys are planning to talk about since yours are more or less you know in-game oriented and i'm really thinking about my relationship with magic the gathering and how i really want to engage with the game and our podcast and this product in 2020 because if i look back on 2019 i spent more time on mtg than ever before so is 2020 going to be just about getting all the secret layers that drop? <laughs> 2020 is about collecting. <laughs> 2020 is about buying no secret layers. <gasps> because last year, in addition to helping start this podcast, I bought into quite a few decks, right? I bought into Stoneblade, Grixis Shadow, a bunch of Black Red stuff when I was into Skelemental, a bunch of Pioneer stuff, which is spread across like four or five different decks. Stan's Skelemental phase is still my favorite, you know, period of his art. 
Thanks. I'm excited to revisit it on a comeback tour when I get to headline Pitchfork Music Festival. Entire album in one show. And really, when I think about 2019 in retrospect, I kind of wish I'd spent a little less time jumping between paper decks, especially after Faithless Looting got banned, and rather spent a little more time improving my skill with the strategies that had previously interested me. So, for example, after buying into Grixis Shadow, I quickly realized I sort of hate playing that deck. <laughs> and and I tried playing it several times. And I just... For, for listeners, Dave is so mad right now. <laughs> I've been loving Shadow lately. I've been playing so much of it. Hey, buddy, to each his own. I just... I just can't have a good time, win, lose, or draw. Like, it's just not something about that deck just doesn't really capture my imagination. And likewise, Stoneblade, I felt like that was a somewhat spontaneous purchase based on a post-Faithless Looting fugue state that I was in with a lot of other modern players at the time. The, the Faithless Looting fugue state is my second favorite period of Stan's art. <laughs> God. Yeah, I had a lot of emotions in 2019. And likewise with Pioneer, there was so much hype with this new format and the cards were so cheap that I was just I was just buying everything and often with almost no direction. This this makes me think, Stan, I mean, one of the things that do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, I love buying cards and buying into decks, but I think that it's a much safer idea for most people to test decks out mm -hmm. before you buy them, either using mana traders, either using a free service like Cockatrice or X Mage. I think those are officially okay to talk about because they haven't been uh, sued into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in terms of service violation or something. So uh, you know, test test decks out. You can you can do that. It's okay. Even proxy them up on paper if you don't want to play online. You can save yourself a lot of money. By re realizing, like Stan did, it's like, I thought I wanted to play Shadow. It seemed like a deck I would be into, but I kind of just hate it. Look, I think some of the thrill associated with jumping between paper decks actually prevented me from maybe mastering other stuff that I had access to. And maybe even that stuff I had access to, I also had more experience playing and generally a little more interest in playing long term. And I was talking to my buddy Martin about this, who's essentially been playing various were of invention decks for as long as I've known him. And something he said to me that has just stuck with me forever, and I'm really excited to share with the podcast, is that it takes longer for players to truly understand a deck than they may realize. And I think that's something I've definitely been guilty of, where I test the deck through a league or two, maybe take it to the LGS a couple times, and I'm just like, I get it. But there's so much wealth of knowledge that is associated with trying a deck across lots of different matchups, across different format conditions that can really illuminate what that deck is capable of in a more holistic way. But Stan, talk to talk to Shane, who loves playing new decks, who loves buying new cards. Tell me why I should stick to a deck. Yeah, happy to, because there are definitely benefits to sticking to a deck. For starters, and I think some of these will be pretty obvious, you just increase your experience across a variety of matchups, like I said before. You know, if you're a burned player, playing against Grixis Shadow is very different than playing against Blue Eye Control is very different than playing Burn Mirrors. And I think until you get that 
breadth of experience, you can't really be a master of any archetype. Likewise, when you're sticking to a single or maybe just a handful of decks, you get to test and ideally improve your sideboard decisions, which is something that I basically lose sleep over. What should go into my sideboard? What should come out of my sideboard between games? It's such a stressful concept in Magic. I think we can all agree on that. But when you have a ton of experience to fall back on and establish heuristics along the way, it just makes that component a little easier. Honey, what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong? Are you thinking about three brazen borrowers or four brazen borrowers again? Well, you know, David, if I take the brazen borrower out of the sideboard, put it in the main deck, then I clear up all this new real estate for my sideboard. It's amazing. One of the other benefits of sticking to one or just a handful of decks is improving your understanding of meta conditions and their impact on a format. And that's something that I haven't really had to come face to face with because of my tendency to jump across strategies because I was able to really lean into a pretty big collection that I built over time so that my attention span more or less got in the way of me understanding how, you know, Oko Autumn or Hogak Summer or Is It Spring really impacted modern at large because I was playing Is It Phoenix once upon a time and at the same time when Hogak was around and when Oko was a thing, like I was playing a little bit more Pioneer and leaning into other blue-red strategies and not necessarily considering how like specific decks such as Stoneblade might operate in all of these changing environments and climates. And I think really one of the most important things that almost never comes up on this podcast, so rarely comes up in magic content in general, but when you're sticking to fewer decks, you just end up saving a lot of money because you have less of a motive to upgrade strategies. Let's say you have, you know, 10 different decks that you care about and love or a commander deck in every single color pair. If you're constantly upgrading those strategies when a new set comes out, it's going to be a lot more expensive than if, say, you're just a burn player or you're just a control player. Stan, I hear you. And I think you're right that you do save money, but I don't think you don't spend money. Because even as someone who loves red mid-range or red grindy decks, I'm still looking for the next thing to get and looking for the next thing I want. And I think that not maybe a natural conclusion, but inclusion for a lot of players when they start to master an archetype is to make their deck fancier of that archetype. So if you've been playing Death Shadow and rocking it for a long time, I think there are more than two players who go, cool, how do I get foil shadows? How do I get promo fetches now? So I, I think you spend your money less on like but picking up new strategies, but I do think when you hone an archetype, you do spend a lot of money just focused in a different direction. Definitely a contingent of that player in the magic scene, especially in the modern scene. I think we've seen a lot of those people going to tournaments big and small. Some of us might be those people, Zach. Are you implying that I was speaking from experience as I only know how to do? Yeah. I mean, I never said to stop spending money. I don't think you can really <laughs> engage with magic if your budget is zero, unless you're doing it exclusively on things like cockatrice or you and your friends are just proxying things up. But being able to kind of shrink that budget without necessarily impeding on your fun is maybe a nice goal to have for me right now. Oh, sure. But Stan, like sticking to a deck is boring, my man. <laughs> That's Newsville. No doubt. Newsville. Shane just skated up with a uh, like a fanny pack full of four new decks and fingerless gloves. And he unzips and he goes, check out all my new decks. And then he skated away. 
I did get a pair of Heelys, okay, for Christmas. Oh my no. god. What? <laughs> my my mother-in-law is a good gift giver. We all got Heelys. Shane for too long was walking down so many ramps and it was just taking forever. Shane, you know you're going to be that dude that has to pop into an emergency room in Denver and be like, yeah, I broke my ankle on my Heelys. (laughs) And yes, I am 40 years old. (laughs) Dave, I actually think you're out of touch here because I've worn fanny packs. You cannot fit more than one deck in a fanny pack. Oh, it's a specially sized one. It's like a bandolier kind kind of deck bandolier like Chewbacca or something. Ultimate guard. Please pay me, but a fanny pack that can hold like a tripled sleeve deck. I think there's a market for that. With RFID protection. Okay, hot take of the day. If your fanny pack holds more than one deck, that's a backpack. A satchel. Okay, sure. <laughs> anyway, let's get back. <laughs> Shane, you you really segued nicely into my next point, which is the challenges of sticking to a single deck. Because I definitely get bored from lack of variety. And I think I've actually found this to be true through my experience playing Blue, Red, and Soul in Pioneer, that some decks, because of their more or less repetitive play style, get more boring faster. For me. Says you. I was going to say, I mean, I think that you have to recognize there are certain people who find variety in different places, right? Like, there, mm-hmm. there are definitely players who just play burn, right? Like, and they play burn all the time, and they're masters of it, and like I'm trying to imagine, like if Lopless John on MTGO is listening to us, he's like, "Look, I played Devoted Druid for nine months for like three leagues a day, and then I'm now I'm playing Eldrazi Tron for six months, a couple leagues a day, and I love it because I get really good at it." Mm-hmm. Some of the other challenges of sticking to one or relatively few decks can be a feeling of consistent disadvantage in hostile metas. You know, when a format gets really broken, like what happened with Hogak, for example, and you want to play a fair strategy, you might feel like all the cards are stacked against you. And that definitely sucks. Likewise, you could get super punished by a ban. You know, like if you put all of your chips into something like Affinity, then Mox Opal gets banned. That might feel like you're just out of cards to play with and you just have to start over from scratch. And if you've been an enfranchised player, albeit with one deck, that's a pretty crappy feeling too. You know, something that I experienced with Shadow is, let's say Shadow was the first deck I ever built and then I found out that I didn't like playing it. That could be a pretty sour way to start your relationship with a format and maybe a pretty crappy way to even get acclimated to a format that you're unfamiliar with. Yeah, Modern definitely is a format where there are some really expensive cards that don't go in a ton of strategies and only go in a certain archetype. So if you find yourself buying into, say, like a burn deck, you can definitely convert some of the stuff over. But if you don't like going fast with a Swift Spear or a Goblin Guide, it can be hard to find new homes for those cards that are a flexible strategy. So Stan, how are you going to try to execute on this? Because I think it's interesting. Like I I agree with a lot of these things that you're saying, but how are you going to try to level up your, your stick-to-itiveness this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some ideas that I had um, kind of boiled down to creating a structure and discipline for myself. And, and maybe these are things that other people can consider for themselves as well if they're trying to improve their budgeting for magic. Um, obviously, having like a specific monetary budget that you might spend per week or per month or, you know, per fiscal quarter is one. But 
Something that I really like in video games, and I've been playing more PS4 lately, is this concept of achievements. And I even see it on MTGO screenshots sometimes. Like, Aspiring Spike posted a screenshot where they used Archmage's Charm to steal a, a, a vial from a humans player, and they ticked a vial to 15 counters, and they used it to vial in an Emrakul. <laughs> and creating these arbitrary goals for yourself when you're trying to stick to one deck could be a fun way to keep yourself engaged over a longer period of time. We often hear about like the gamification of things, like gamifying workouts or cleaning to make it better. But I like that you are gamifying an aspect of a game. It's a sub-game. This is how you keep people engaged when they're only medium good. <laughs> Just telling you. Another thing that I picked up from a streamer I like, the pen sword, is focusing your experimentation on your sideboard instead of your main deck and using that 15-card package to try really out their stuff that might seem counterintuitive or unpredictable or just cutting edge. And maybe when you're limited to how many cards you can actually change in your deck because you're more or less married to a 60-card package, that can give you a new way to express yourself or try new stuff. Yeah, and I think one thing that that he does that's really great is that you can always count on him to have some idea of what blue-red control should kind of look like in the meta right now. And he tries out tons of stuff, right? You can see him one week, he's playing a thing in the ice enabled kind of blue red, uh, blue moon deck. Another week he's playing Emrakul Breach instead. And so you get all of these different kind of takes and see what cards could possibly go in this archetype. And so by constraining like his viewpoint, you actually see somebody who's really trying to push a an archetype forward. Yeah. And, you know, another concept that Shane had touched on previously in terms of how to get yourself ready to buy a deck in paper, something that I can do and people with Mana Traders accounts is creating these MTGO-based prerequisites to meet before building something in paper. So let's say, you know, I'm thinking about getting into Shadow for the first time really pushing myself to get a 4-1 or a 5-0 in a league before I really decide to put the money into it. I think that's a good way for people to realize faster whether or not a strategy actually speaks to them and, and applies to what makes magic fun for them. Stan, I, I love this point. It's something I haven't thought about before, but I think that a lot of people can do this, whether it's magic online, whether it's X-Mage, Cockatrice, Proxied in paper with some friends, is you know that sets kind of a little bit of a bar for you to clear rather than just wanting something. And you kind of have to earn it. And I think that there's kind of this fear, well, if I don't buy it now, am I going to miss some kind of cost window or it's going to go up a ton? And I'll tell you what, I follow finances a lot lately, and cards are not moving as much as you think they are anymore. I think the the print runs that we're having and just the ubiquitousness of these cards being available, you're not going to end up spending a ton more than you thought than you would have two weeks ago. Absolutely. And just something to build off of both of what you are saying. If you are interested in buying into a deck and you're testing it online or with friends, think about what kind of level you want to play it at and try to play at that level for a little bit or see how it does. Like if you are trying to buy into a deck because you want to go to a bunch of GPs, playing only kitchen table is probably not a good way to get the sense of whether or not you like the deck because you're not playing against constant high level competition. Unless you're on a team and maybe you have great friends, not impossible. But in general, if you really want to buy a competitive deck or even a casual deck, think about where you're testing it and where you're playing to see if you're going to like it in that environment. Some final thoughts as I close out my little portion of this chit chat. 
<laughs> I think a lot of Magic players, myself included, love talking about goal setting in terms of in-game accomplishments. Because I think that's a nice way to measure what your ambitions are versus what your successes are. But at the same time, I often feel like the financial investment that goes with playing Magic can sometimes be an afterthought, which I wonder if this is just part and parcel with the nature of Magic content these days and the platforms that publish it, right? I don't know if organizations like Star City Games or TCG Player, who produce amazing content, which is super valuable to players, are motivated to post stuff about how players can play on a better budget, because these are organizations that want to sell cards, which is not bad, but I mean, that's the reality of like the case. I think we're kind of in this position where we're not necessarily as invested in our listeners buying singles as other content hubs are that maybe we can talk about budget being who we are in the magic community. Uh, you can find my referral code for paper purchases in my bio on Twitter if you are invested in buying paper cards. Sorry, just wanted to hashtag sponsor. <laughs> not nobody, I'm kidding. I really think the point that I wanted to kind of explore in this section was whether or not a player, starting with myself, can use budgeting as a way to improve my play and look at the opportunities to get better with a deck or with a strategy because I'm forcing myself to work within certain kind finds. And once upon a time, I used to be a lot better at this when all I owned were Scalding Tarns and Steam Vents and all I played was like Kiki Jiki Combo. All I could do was build different blue-red decks that use Scalding Tarn and Steam Vents. The worst thing I could ever do was buy Bloodstained Mire. You can only fail up, Stan. Look at me now. So that's where I'm at. Maybe you guys can help keep me honest if you see me buying like a bunch of foil promo rat cards. Hold me down. Take the credit card from his hand and say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, microwave it so it can't be used. So Stan, where your topic is a little more trying to focus in on one deck and sort of narrow your focus, I think my topic is really helpful for people who have narrowed that focus or have decided upon a genre of decks and is more of a, I picked my deck and now I'm getting better and focusing more. And it's also a general magic topic, but for me, it really came from a place of deciding on a strategy and wanting to get better at not, maybe not micro decisions, but more small decisions within that deck. And for me, I'm talking about sequencing and sort of alongside that cost-benefit analysis. So for me, sequencing was something that when I finally sort of grokked it and understood it was a big level-up moment and something that is still the hardest for me. It's something that I find myself like walking myself through and talking about and asking my opponents later, hey, was this right? And when I talk about sequencing, what I'm saying is literally the order in which you play your cards. And there's a lot of nuance to that because it's all spells, it's lands, it's everything across the board. So I'm not going to take that big of a zoom out, and I'm going to talk about a few specific examples and how they apply to me and what I think we can get from those. But in general, sequencing is the order in which you play the cards in your hand and how to really get the most value out of them. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a super underrated thing in, in Magic, right? Because people often make decisions kind of off the cuff or they get on autopilot where they're like, I'm going to play this card and then I'm going to play this card and this is my next best card and so I'm going to play that and they don't really put a lot of thought into uh, why they're doing it the way they are. Absolutely. And for me, this comes down to decision trees, those things I talk about quite frequently, where basically the choice you make now is going to directly impact the choices you have available, at least on your end later. So it's something that maybe seem sort of like, eh, these cards sort of do the same thing. But the really, it's that small difference that we're talking about or things along those lines that can add up really big. So as someone who plays a lot of decks with cards that have similar but identical effects, I often find times where it's hard to know which card should I sequence first or which card should I play first. 
So I'm going to give two examples that are unique to me and my decks, but hopefully can be generalized and you get some ideas from them. So the example one is when you're choosing between two removal spells. So broad example, say you're playing Rock Dust and Pioneer, very popular, very cool deck, and your opponent plays a Scavenging Ooze, and they're tapped out. So they got a 2-2, right? In your hand, you have a Stomp, a card that we know does 2 damage, or Swift End, a card that destroys any creature but costs 3 mana for Stomps 2. So which one do you cast? Ooze can quickly grow out of Stomp range, right? So if your opponent is able to put a single counter on it, all of a sudden Stomp isn't a clean removal, and you're going to need to get some sort of combat damage in there or another removal spell. But on the other hand, Swift End has no claws like that. It can destroy any creature. So is it better to hold the Stomp there? and use the swift end or try to make them have something, it's hard. And I'm not here to answer that question, but it's that sort of thing of, you'd think about, does it matter that this two damage is going to this creature that could go at a walker? Does it matter that this creature might get too big for my stomp? Do I have to use it now? And it's just thinking about how to best get the use out of not only your mana, because one's two versus three, but out of your cards in general, because one can kill anything. So once again, not here to offer an answer to this question, but to really... You have to think about these choices, and it's not just, oh, well, I have two mana, I'm going to use it now. Think about it. What do you have more applications for? Yeah, I think there's a tendency of a lot of players, and I think a lot of it is kind of based off of listening to very smart people like you know Marshall and LSV in a limited context where it's like, I should be using my mana all the time. And I think that there are times like the one you know that you're mentioning, which is I might not always want to just use my mana simply because it's the most efficient thing to do. There are contextual reasons why I might want to hold something or play a less efficient spell now to make a value later. I think it's really funny because I also think there's often times where the opposite is true, where in order to project yourself forward to use your mana all your mana on turns going forward, you might also play a worse card now to do that. So it's kind of this like unending layer of of an onion where you're like, well, if I do this, then I can do this. And if I do this, then I can do this. And you you really have to figure out like what makes the most sense in the situation you're in. No, absolutely. And I'll touch on this a little bit later, but this isn't to say that you should every single time you have any sort of decision, think through every possible outcome and weigh them because that takes forever. It really does. And like you can get better at that and you can think about how to quickly weigh the first few you think of. And like I said, this is something I'm going to elaborate on later, but there's a lot to it and not every decision tree can be a five minute thought. Right. And also one of the challenges is sometimes the truth isn't really clear to you until the game is over and you actually have information about right. what your opponent had in their hand all along, etc. So Zach, this is something that you feel like you want to get better at. Which aspect of this do you think you kind of struggle with right now? So what I struggle with right now is I feel like in general, I can play around what my opponent might have versus what they're likely to have, right? So I can think, okay, like if I jam this card over this card, and an example of that is Rabble Master of a Legion War Boss, one card does two more damage over a couple turns. And that Rebel Master is a little faster than Legion Warboss. So it's the sort of thing of, if I jam this, what are their possible outs? Instead of me thinking, what's likely for them to have? Or like, typically, what am I going to see when I'm playing Jund, when I'm playing Tron, whatever? So I think sometimes I can force myself into thinking about friend situations and over overestimating how likely they are. Or like, okay, they're only out as this. Oh, and that is a new card. I'm not going to play this in case they have it. Like, I can sometimes do that. Or, or like I mentioned before, overthinking. So I think what what I want to get better at with sequencing is not overthinking it, but not being so uh, sort of tunnel-visioned or uh, narrow-minded about it. 
and saying, okay, realistically, my opponent's on Jund. I see they have two cards in hand and they have two mana, one red, one black open. This feels like they're representing removal to me. So I'm going to play my threat that I care less about getting removed versus a more valuable one so they can spend the removal on that and that can resolve my better threat. Things like that. And if they don't have removal, great. I played around something that wasn't that punishing in the end. So it's more of not getting in my own way when thinking about it and not getting too far in. Like, you don't need to think about 10 turns down the road for most decks, or my decks at least, what you're going to do or how this is going to affect you. For me, mostly it's, okay, if I play this card, what are the next two turns going to play out ideally? And like, what can they do about that likely? So it's it's more about that for me. Awesome. That's a tricky one. Think about what a person is likely to have versus what they could have is such a fine line. Oh, yeah. And, and so how are you really measuring, like, what are they likely to have if, let's say it's game one and you don't really know what your opponent has in their deck at all? So this is one of those things that I talk about a lot that I think is a super important skill in magic, especially at high levels, is early game identifying quickly what your opponent's on. And even it's just an archetype, right? Like, if my opponent plays a turn one Tron land, my first thought isn't mono green Tron. It's, oh, they're a big mana Tron deck. Okay, typically they have these sorts of things in them. And then obviously if you see a forest, you can go from there. Or if your opponent fetches and shocks in a Steam Vents and then, you know, Serum Visions, you have an idea of what sort of deck they're on. So it's seeing those sort of things and going, okay, what are like really popular modern cards that are in these colors? So for example, in modern, I would not play around a Settle the Wreckage if I didn't have an indication my opponent would be running a card like that. If I saw a lot of other off-color cards or strange cards, I might consider that they would have a strange board wipe. But if I saw my opponent just on Spirits, I would not assume right away that I should play around a Settle the Wreckage. I might play around a Supreme Verdict or the cards that I know are typically run, but I would not play around a card that could blow me out, but I do not think they would have. Mm -hmm. Based on sort of metadata and things I've seen around online at my LGS. And I think as far as sequencing goes, what you can, that's your tool that you have to be able to make someone make a bad decision with the cards that they have in their hand, right? Exactly. So the order that you play, if you have an idea of what you think is in their hand, you can play your cards in order that make them make a bad decision. And I think that's a powerful thing to think about in sequencing itself. Oh, absolutely. And once again, to go back to two cards I love so very much, Rival Master and Legion Warboss, it's a sort of thing where sequencing can also be not playing a card or holding it back a turn, right? Like, if I play a Legion Warboss and my opponent doesn't immediately remove it, but I think they might have a board wipe, I might not play that Rebel Master and make them use a board wipe on my one card. So essentially gaining a little bit of tempo there, and I know they've wiped the board, so I can safely play my card. And you know, maybe they drew spot removal, that can happen. But ideally, you made them, you, you make them have it, and then you respond is sort of the way I look at, at sequencing and things like that. Yeah, I'd say formats where you're expecting to face down some kind of board wipe deck in a league that you're playing or at your LGS that night, that's a huge opportunity for you to use sequencing skill. The thing that you need to, and or if it's even not even a sweeper, let's say it's a graveyard hate card that has a one-time use. So you find yourself in a position where I need to play the cards in my hand and that I imagine are left in my deck in a fashion that makes my opponent have to act in a way that is less damaging to me. So like you said, do I play out less valuable creatures in order to create just enough pressure that forces the use of that sweeper in their hand or fills my graveyard just enough to make them use that Tormod script and then I can quickly rebuild? 
it's a really delicate balance and relies a lot on sequencing properly or else you're going to give up too much value. Oh, absolutely. And when I first started playing Magic in 7th edition way so long ago, I didn't think about sequencing. I would jam my hand, play my cards when I could, and just swing, 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 and get out there. And obviously, that's because I played red, aggressive strategies like that. But in general, it's one of those things where you totally reanalyze the game and totally rethink about it. Because it's sort of, well, if I play this card now, they don't answer it, I win the game. But, oh, hold on. They probably have some answers. Decks like these have some answers. So what can I do to work around those answers or find a way to get it in there when an answer is less likely, etc.? And as we talked about, sequencing is a huge thing. And we can probably have like a whole episode at one point about sequencing. But in general, it's just thinking about how to best sort of engage in this dance we call magic. Yeah, one of the things that you'll hear very high-level, pro-level players talk about is how an even higher-level play player outplayed them sure you know so like the you know the javier dominguez's of the world you know the super great players that are just killing it right now and how they just make them you know the other player feel dumb because they just got outplayed and a lot of that is like dave said and like you brought up zach in this whole idea is it's the sequencing of your cards making them play something into what you have in your hand making them waste value killing a threat that you played there that you didn't even need to it's about waiting to play something till the next turn like you know i i remember this example about growth spiral where it's like they didn't play growth spiral on turn 2 because make them they made them think that they didn't need they have it and then they untapped and did something else that was far more damaging than not playing the gross spiral on turn two and it's like little things like that that are decisions that have huge impact no absolutely and just a real quick thing about sort of realizing that these decisions can be so impactful this was sort of the first moment that someone had pointed out to me that like i sequenced wrong and like it blew my mind sort of thing where i'm playing against a player right and I have the ability to attack them and have lethal next turn if they don't respond, and I have a haste creature in hand, but the haste creature doesn't change the fact that I have lethal on board next turn. So you don't need to play that haste creature. You can hold it back in case they do something to your board, then it attacks next turn. And like when someone told me that, like it was, but why wouldn't I play it? Like I want my board to be stacked, and it's, well, what if they wipe your board? Like, well, I'm going to lose anyway. Well, no, because you have a haste creature in your hand. It can attack with it. Oh, oh. And like that sort of thing where it's, it can be small like that. And it can be like, well, it doesn't matter. And like, well, no, a lot of stuff matters in this game. And to write something off as it doesn't matter, or it's like, oh, it's fine. I can do this anyway, is really to lose like those percentage points or to lose a way that you could get something in the table or interact in a way where your opponent maybe thought you couldn't. Cool. I think these are all, these are cool points, Zach. Thank you. I'm extremely very cool. I'm into jazz now, so. Ooh. So one of the areas that I think I'm particularly weak at, and I think that could be a focus in any game, which is a valuable thing, I can do this literally every game I play, is improving my mulliganing. And mulliganing is just pretty widely considered one of the most important parts of magic and an area where many players are just making fundamental stakes and cost them that cost them games. And of course, I'm not immune to this. I think that I've been trying to focus on mulling, but I'm still losing percentage points by making mistakes in my mulliganing. So for players who may not be familiar with this concept, what is mulliganing? <laughs> Do we have time to get into mulliganing for real? <laughs> who who can find this podcast and not know how to mulligan? <laughs> no, so I have I have a question. Can I ask a question? Yes, please. Shane, 
just a temperature check on you. Yeah. Do you think you mulligan too often or not enough? Not enough. Especially with the deck I've been playing the most, mono black aggro. In Pioneer. In Pioneer. Because it's not a deck in Modern. No, not really. I mean, it's a it's a deck, I'm sure. It's not the deck that I would play in Modern. I think I don't mulligan enough. And also the deck I've been playing the most in Modern um, over the past few months, which is not a lot, which is Humans. And I think Humans also is a, is a deck that you probably want to have a good sequence. Going back to Zach's point, we, when we talked about Humans in our uh, deck dive on that a while ago, we talked about how important the sequencing is there. So I think that com- combines both mulliganing need and sequencing need into one handy little package. But yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I'm mulligan enough, and I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the reasons why. I think that you know, mulliganing, of course, is important in every format you play, but because Pioneer and Modern are more efficient and more powerful, I think mulliganing has an even higher importance because the games don't go as long and you see less of your deck, and so you really want to be able to execute some type of game plan. Um, early on and also the london mulligan which was added in june of last year that's had a pretty significant impact on some of like the older established rules of thumb and thought patterns that are the mulligans and so i kind of wanted to just sort of revisit mulliganing in general i'm glad you mentioned london mulligan because i feel like the full impact of that rule change is still being assessed to this day oh yeah People, I mean, it's interesting. You, you could still have someone start an argument on Twitter about it just any day of the week, like how they feel about it, how, how it's being detrimental or beneficial to various formats. But I did some research on high-level players' approach to mulligans, particularly uh, PVDDR, and he wrote a lot of articles on like Channel Fireball about keeper moles and things like that. So what I noticed is there was a number of consistent themes and concepts that I wanted to talk about. And I honestly had to leave a lot out of this discussion. I think this this is one of the things that could easily be an entire episode for us and might be one day. So realize this is hardly the extent of things to think related to mulligans. But one of the things I noticed is that mulligans are definitely not prescriptive, right? Me- meaning even the best players aren't agreeing on hands that are keeps or moles. So there's just not a lot of hard and fast rules. And you have to make decisions on your mulligans in the moment, relying on kind of instinct, awareness of your deck and the matchup, some back of the napkin math. And I think those are that's something to keep in mind is that it's hard to be prescriptive about this. But you know, there's a reason that you know nearly every episode of the MTG Grindcast, their episodic thing is a keeper mole segment where they talk about a mulligan, they talk about a hand, they talk about what their game plan would be with a particular hand, whether or not they think they should keep it or not. You know, Paulo's written a bunch of articles about keeping or mulliganing. So it's a really important decision, but also really challenging. Absolutely. And it really fits in well with the sequencing idea because when you mulligan is like opening up doors for sequencing and thinking about how you're going to sequence things, right? Entirely. Keeping a hand with a curve that starts at three is making a choice to not sequence at all during the first few turns aside from lands, things like that. It's literally the basis of what you're going to do that game, right? So it's important that you have an idea of what to do. Yeah, and it's contextual, right? There's there's so much more to keeping a hand than just having some lands and some spells. Because you're not just keeping or mulliganing like this generic hand because you're influenced by the deck that you're playing. If you're on the play, if you're on the draw, the deck that you are playing against, if you know that and so on. Because, you you know, you're always going to know what your deck is and what your game plan is, whether or not you know your opponent's deck. So at least you have that information to act on. And the London Mulligan 
going back to the themes that I'm, I'm, I'm noticing in articles is it's a lot more forgiving oh, yeah. than the earlier mulligan rules. And so every subsequent mull under the earlier mole rules was felt more punishing than it already even was, right? So, and but the fact that you continue to see seven cards each time you mulligan now under the London mole allows you to take that mulligan with a little bit less concern. A, a mold of five under the London mulligan is met with less size for me than a five previously was, where it's, I guess I keep. Zach, I can't believe you brought up this example because I've been telling practically anyone who listened to me. I've lost count of how many times I've won off of a mole to five since the London Mulligan. Definitely. Oh, sure. It used to be a big deal, right? Yeah, it used to be so hard. And and one of the conclusions this led me to, and I, I promise not to take us down this road for too long, but it's started to shape my thinking of how many cards you need in a hand to have what is considered a broken hand. And I think a lot of decks can have a broken hand with only five cards. Yeah. I mean, mulliganing puts you down resources, right? And that can be punishing, but you're able to then sculpt your hand with a London mulligan in a lot more powerful ways. And so you can at least have a plan. And that's a lot more likely than it was before to at least have some kind of game plan that you felt you had some role in creating. And so, you know, we have like kind of these themes about, you know, it's not prescriptive, it's contextual, and also you have more forgiveness in your mulligans now. So how can you act on those concepts? And I think the first most important thing is to know your deck and know your plan. You want to be knowing kind of like the tempo of your deck. What do you do? Are you casting proactive spells? Are you casting reactive spells to what your opponent's doing? Are you having a mix of both? You know, are you trying to pressure your opponent with creatures? Are you trying to ramp your mana? What are the first few turns of your game plan looking like? And is that going to be enough for you to set the tempo of the game with the hand that you're looking at? You know, and if you're being more reactive, how long can you wait to be reactive? You know, do the spells in your hand line up against the threats that you're expecting to see in the meta? Or is the first thing you're doing casting a turn for Supreme Verdict? And then also looking at the mana requirements of the cards you need to cast. It seems really obvious, but many of the mistakes I make are keeping lands that come into play tapped when I'm going to need access to that color really quickly, or I'm going to fall behind on tempo. Where it's like, okay, this looks like a good land. Yeah, I got, I got some lands. I got some spells. These are spells that make sense. And I'm like, oh, well, this land comes into play tapped. Crud. Um, and similarly, on the mana requirements, do you need access to like double colors pretty quickly? but only have a single source. And so you need to have some general idea of the math behind your deck. We talked about this in our mathematics episode a few months ago. Like, But getting to that second color source is probably less likely than you think. Like, Even if you have like black, 18 black sources in your deck, but you're going to need two of them to cast that Liliana on turn three, you're only about 54% to find that. Uh, by turn three on the play and 70% on the draw. So you might be comfortable with that on the draw, those odds. But on the play, if you're really relying on that Lily on turn three, that's not great odds to get to that second source of black. One of the things I think that you need to know about your deck too is like, are you like a quantity or a quality deck? This is something that PV brought up in 2018. He, he stated that uh, in, in a mulliganing article, he stated that he kind of looks at decks in those two categories. Do you want just a critical mass of cards, like a quantity deck? And those are kind of punished by mulligans, like because you're just going down on, let's say, a human in humans or something like that. Or are you a quality deck where you know that you need to have a few cards that your entire strategy is hinging on? 
so fundamentally, in terms of your deck, you got to figure out how you're going to win a game. And you have to keep hands that give you the greatest chance to get to that winning situation. So besides knowing your own, you need to know your opponent's deck and their plan. And this gets back to what Zach was saying, where even if you don't know their deck, like it's not game two or game three, by their, their early turns, you can kind of uh, understand their game plan. That, of course, can't inform your mulligan in game one, but in your sideboarder games, it can. But you really need to understand the strategy that they're trying to implement. Because that's a key consideration in the decisions you're making. Like, are they a discard-based deck? If so, you might not want to mulligan as as frequently because you're not going to be able to rely on just a single key card that you keep because they could cast a turn one Duress, a turn one Thoughtseize, an Inquisition of Kozilek, and you are out of luck. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately playing Mono Black and Pioneer is, is this a creature deck that has a little bit of a higher curve? Like, is it Mono Green? where they're going to be casting slightly bigger creatures on a slightly higher curve that pretty quickly invalidate my creatures. So like a hand with two lands and four low drop creatures might be awesome in the blind, but against them, it kind of stinks. And I need to mulligan more hard for a couple pieces of my removal that then keeps their important creatures off the board and lets me get past their mana dorks, for example. And something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is like, are they on the player on the draw? Are you on the player on the draw? Because that impacts your game plan. And, and Pioneer feels really play draw dependent. And so being able to get that tempo back when you're on the draw through, let's say, efficient removal, uh, counter spells, maybe some conditional two for ones, that's really essential. And so the things that I want to try to fix in my gameplay and i'm curious if you guys have you know have different ideas that you've noticed in your mulligans is i want to look at do any of my lands come into play tapped like i mentioned earlier because am, am i okay and am i okay with this land coming into play tapped because i've made so many mistakes related to this more often than i want to admit where it's like okay i have this game plan oh wait this land does not come into play for me to use it. What lands are you talking about? Are you talking about the fast lands generally with that or like castles? I've, I've, I've kept like a castle where it's like, oh, wait, this is not actually a land that comes into play untapped. I've got like two muta vaults and a castle or something like that. And you go muta vault turn one and then you put castle into play. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's not great. Big brain, big brain. Or like when I was testing that green white deck, uh, the Mantor deck a few weeks ago, he's telling you there's those, there's a lot of conditional lands in the allied mana bases that you have to be more careful with. Um, one of the other thing I, th- I noticed in my mulliganing is always thinking about being on the player on the draw. You know, how is this impacting my keep? Because, you know, that's something that is a known quantity every time you play the game. Like, am I on the player or on the draw? Does this hand play entirely differently if uh, I'm reacting what my opponent's doing? And again, going back to those the odds thing, like what are the odds that I draw that second color source to be able to cast something like Grasp of Darkness on turn two or like that Liliana of the Veil in Modern on turn three? Like just keeping that in mind. Having those odds in the back of your mind is not that hard because you can be like, okay, I know if I have a single source of black mana, what my odds are by turn two, what my odds are by turn three. And that's something that you can just know about your deck pretty easily. Mm -hmm. I think one thing I would add in here is that I think people, when they're doing their keep mold decisions, should spend a little bit of time thinking about if their deck has an alternate plan to success that is represented by a different hand texture than what they're wanting, right? So if you are an aggro deck 
right? If you're the black aggro deck and you're like, man, I it's game two and I went a little bigger, so I have Aethers for Harvester and Kalidus and stuff in here now and I have less one drops, you have to keep in mind that you can still have an aggro draw that will get you there. And it's not necessarily that you need to be playing your expensive cards as you sideboard it in to be successful in the matchup, even though they're good. And so you have to really do that that analysis of like, hey, am I am I okay with this hand for this game? Because trading in resources for a different plan is not something I necessarily want to do. You can have multiple paths to success with the same deck. And I, I think that's really worth considering and mulliganing. Because I do think people kind of get tunnel vision where they go, oh, this doesn't have my combo, I need to mulligan until I get my combo. Or, oh, this doesn't have my Tormod's Crypt, so I need to mulligan until I can get my Tormod's Crypt. And it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe you have a different way to buy time to draw into a Tormod's Crypt instead of just firing off the top of your deck five times to get it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think that kind of gets into my next point that I want to be thinking about a lot more in my mulliganing decisions. And it's like, how does my hand interact with what I think my opponent's trying to do. So it's not necessarily just a a power level or you know is what they're going to do invalidate what my plan was, but it's like what is my hand actually doing to invalidate my opponent's strategy. So not just thinking about my own strategy and how effectively I can enact that, but how am I also acknowledging that my opponent is also a player with agency who also has a game plan that I also need to be able to disrupt in order to win because we're both intelligent players. That's that's trying to, that are trying to do something and we're not, I'm not just playing against a, a deck with a sequence on top of it. And so I think that kind of gets to what you were saying and, and kind of what I was saying earlier too, Dave, about like, let's say against the mono green deck or the, the green black stompy deck, which is, you know, what am I actually doing to stop them? And so whether or not that's a couple pieces of removal that invalidates their Steel Leaf champion, invalidates their, you know, their Galta, and then I'm off to the races, and I can just kind of outrace them or, or beat them on the ground or in the air with like an Aether Sphere Harvester or a, a Rankle or something like that. So I think that like you know thinking about that interaction is also really important, in Pioneer, because it's there's, the interaction is not quite as good, and it's a much more battlefield based format. Yeah, and I think again the the balance here is making sure you're open to an alternate yeah for sure kind of direction to go and also i think that you do have to the one thing about post london mall is that you have to look at how many times your opponent has mulliganed as well and see if that um indicates to you that they have it if they're a combo style deck or or if you think that maybe they don't have it because of the way that they've mulled because that's another thing that's happened is that you know both players pretty much have it most of the time. And so what happens in a world where both players have most of the cards they're looking for, it's that you have to figure out what that plan is to get around the cards that they have to play against you as well. Yeah, for sure. When my opponent keeps seven and they're on the play, and so I can see that, and they're the, some, something that has like a synergy-based deck, I'm always much more willing to then mull for like that hate piece like you mentioned earlier, right? Where it's like, oh, poop like i really have to get my ley line of the void here or i really need to get that duress yeah, exactly so that's my spiel um, i'll be focusing on mulliganing as well as what the things that you guys have mentioned so dave well what do you have for us i think mine's pretty simple and maybe kind of sh- short and sweet i just i burn too hot you guys <laughs> i burn too hot i can be i can be a little bit of a of a of a, a feisty person and so uh, I need to figure out what when 
Half as long, twice as bright, bro. That's right. Half as long, twice as bright, my man. Um, I I need to figure out when to take my foot off the gas more often and follow through with taking my foot off the gas. So like a lot of people may not know, or I've mentioned on the podcast a couple <laughs> of times, like I, I used to be pretty much 100% limited player competitively. And the other thing that goes hand in hand with this is that I did basically force aggro decks in draft pretty much constantly. Like I played a lot of aggressive, ton of good good curve into combat trick into lightning bolt kind of decks. I see this is the season two Brett Con of Dave from control player to aggro player only. But. Well, I think that's fair. I, I Yeah, because in Constructed, I really loved control. But once I got into limited a lot, I was like, wow, I can just dr- grind through drafts if I play red as much as possible. Win fast or lose fast, baby. Right. And so, you know, it's a great strategy for cheap wins, but you get dominated in, in the limited environments that exist today. And so, you know, where there's a lot more kind of like mid-rangey control-ish kind of cards, I think, floating around than there used to be, they're much more sensitive to not trying to make like a, a really focused aggro deck be the only option for winning in a format now. And the way that this relates to what I'm doing now is that sometimes I have a, t- a tendency to, to overplay my my hand. Honestly, like I get a little lead. I'm sorry, I, I, was, I was pointing excitedly oh. because I had mentioned this earlier and it's sort of a callback or even a full circle where this is sequencing in a way, right? Where it's, you don't need to overextend if you don't have to. Yeah, and for me, it's not just about overextending. It's me fully kind of believing that my hand is enough to to win if I just keep pushing through. And so what I start to do is do things that I start to believe that my advantage in a given game is so good that if I keep pressing, I'll just get there. And I do it with decks that are not aggro decks sometimes. And that is a real problem in those cases, but it's often a problem in aggro decks and constructed as well. I have been here so often with you, Dave, because... You know, I, I also primarily play sort of aggressive or aggressive mid-range decks, and that's the conundrum I find myself in, which is like, do I need to keep chipping away at their life total, even though it's costing me a resource because they have like a big blocker out there, and like I'm losing this this two one, but I'm getting four damage through, and it's just that's that's or, or sort of be more patient, wait to draw into some removal, wait to draw into some flyers. It's it's really tough for me as well. Yeah, and I think that it can be really subtle. You know, I can ignore an opponent starting to stabilize on like turn four when they've played one removal spell and I'm really one more removal spell away from completely losing my advantage. I need to be cognizant of that a little bit more. You know, basically I can play recklessly when I'm ahead sometimes and I need to kind of tighten that aspect of my game up. And so the funny thing is, I think there are a couple of different ways that I could think about it directly that I've been missing the caution flags going up. So I'm going to talk about two different things right now. The first caution sign that I think I I kind of ignore sometimes is life total management. And basically what I'm saying there is that, you know, in eternal formats in magic, you get a lot of opportunities to trade life totals for resources, right? Whether that's bringing your shock lands into play untapped, whether that's just taking an attack instead of blocking because you think that you're going to outpace your opponent going the other way and win the race and you have your race evaluated wrong, I can be a little bit kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have uh, 18 more life to go. Sure, I'll take five damage here. It's not a big deal. I want to keep my cards. I don't want to block. I've been playing Death Shadow a lot over the over the last couple of months, like I said, and it's it's been my main modern deck since November as I've kind of split my time between modern and pioneer. Um, 
for those that haven't piloted Shadow a lot, it's really kind of a tightrope, right? And Stan mentioned it earlier when he was talking about why he didn't like Shadow. It's that you have to play a game at such a low life total all the time in order to enable one of your threats. So you have to think about how to be close to death, but not too close. And so I guess that's the uh, the fun irony of the name of that card, right? <laughs> So the way I used to think about that deck was that I'm just going to throw out every single enabler that I have. Street Wraith, sure, fire it off. Every shock and fetch, I'm doing shock and fetch every single time. Thought seize, I'll thought seize you three times in a row and not worry about it if, if that's the draw that I got and just force myself down to like six life as fast as possible. Well, there are lots of matchups where that's bad and you know, just because I have a stubborn denial up to be able to kind of save myself against Death Shadow doesn't mean that I that I necessarily need to be attacking with a 7-7 all the time. Maybe I can get there enough if I'm attacking with a 4-4, you know, and so I get to give myself a couple of life points back. So the way I've started to think about it a little bit more is trying to assess my life total in two different metrics. One is the number of cards it would take an opponent to kill me if my life total is starting to get towards the bottom of, towards death. The other one is the number of turns, of course, that it'll take them to get me. And I think, you know, basically, if I have answers for the number of cards that they would need, I feel pretty good and I keep pressing my advantage. If they start to outpace me in card advantage or that my my turn window starts to get smaller, like my life window starts to get smaller than the number of turns it takes me to win... I have to slow down. I batten the hatches, start using my creatures to block, hold back spells, keep removal open, whatever I need to do to try to make sure that I don't die. And maybe I do give a little bit of the control of the game back to the opponent in those those windows, but I think that, you know, you have to realize that I you need to have an answer for their plan and sometimes the answer for their plan is to stop attacking for a minute, let them try to make their kind of assault, fight it off and then get back into attacking again. Yeah, I feel like one of the problems I have is I'm sort of constantly living in fear of the top of my opponent's deck. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like you're just sort of saying, if I if I don't keep getting in there, or if I give them any time, they're going to draw the exact piece that they need to stop me. And I think that that's an unrealistic point of view. And I think that's what you're getting at here, Dave. Yeah, I feel like this is what I was saying earlier too with, with the sequencing thing with where it's sort of play around what's likely not versus the card that can totally blow you out. And I know that's not exactly the same, but it just sort of feels like it's touching on that primal magic fear. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot more subtle ways to um to kind of manipulate that that thing too. Because if you're if you're playing Death Shadow versus Burn and you manage to whittle someone down to where they only have two cards or one card in hand, let's say, and you're swinging in with your guys, they have one card in hand, and you're at eight life, you know, you feel pretty good because you know that they need two draws to be able to catch up to you, to be able to win, because they need to top deck two more bolts, essentially, to be able to kill you. The thing that you don't want to do when you're in that situation is lean into your kind of, like, free cards that are in the shell of Death Shadow or in other cards like that. So you have to actively keep yourself from pushing yourself down into range where it takes them one less card to kill you. Dave, totally. And to build on that once again... You're playing around what they're likely to have, not what they could have, because they could have a Boros Charm in hand and then top deck to their Boros Charm and double charm you, right? Like, that's a reality. But they're, 
likely not going to have exactly the two cards out of what's left in their deck to be able to knock you off there. So stay at eight because once again, at eight, you need three cards. And like the whole thing is there's just so many situations because like we talk about this here, but every single one has a different if and but, et cetera. So you can't master them all, but there's just so much. What a fun game. Yeah. And if I was being really aggressive and I top deck, let's say I have no cards in hand in this situation and I top deck a street wraith and I'm like, I need to cash this in for another card right away. If I'm really paying attention to what's going on and I'm taking myself, realizing that I'm running out of gas in my aggro plan or running out of gas of the fact that I'm in control of the game, I need to hold on to that street wraith. I can't, I can't cash it in for a card because that puts me into a range of spells that, I, that are not acceptable for me to be in right now. What I think is interesting, what I felt like you were getting at earlier, Dave, was kind of dynamic role assessment. Yes. I think that's the second thing, right? So life total is something that is a really kind of concrete thing that you can look at. And I think it's something that can be ported to decks other than Death Shadow, honestly, just to keep track of how much life you're trading for advantage. And it's okay to trade a whole bunch of life for advantage. You have 20, you should use it. But it, that is a symptom of what people talk about in Magic a lot, which is role assignment, which is basically hearkening back to that classic Mike Flores article called Who's the Beatdown from the from 10 or 15 years ago, where, you know, there's always someone in a game who is on offense and there's always someone on defense at any given point in a in a game of magic. And so recognizing which person you are is key to being able to figure out the way that your deck should behave in a certain matchup. And that's a whole other topic in itself. The thing that I want to talk about is that. I need to go with it when the, the the assignments are changing in the middle of a game and because there, there's nothing you can do to stop it quite often once things are already in the middle of flipping. So if I am the aggro, if I'm ahead, if I'm if I'm on offense and I'm attacking and beating down and all of a sudden, you know, they they manage to claw their way back and start to stabilize, I need to slow down and put myself in a position where I can use the resources I have left to buy me time to catch up or to be able to outmaneuver them so that they suddenly overplay against me and then I can kind of sneak in and grab the win. And so the main problem that I've had is that I used to try to force myself to um, continue on the path that I was going on and put all my resources into finishing out the offensive plan when I think that the best way to do it is to take a turn on defense and start paying, putting your attention somewhere else for a couple of turns and then get back on offense once you've been able to kind of fight off their offensive. Because especially if you're ahead on the board on resources, you probably still have a little bit of window where it's in flux between who is on offense and who is on defense. And that can be a moment where you can create a situation for an opponent to make a mistake. And that's when you get to capture your your game back again, I think. Yeah, I think based on the games I've been playing in Pioneer, I think incorrect role assessment is a great way to lose a game of magic because it is so board dependent. Like if, if one person says, well, I need to be attacking here because I have evasive flyers that are going to get over your ground creatures and maybe just put themselves into the risk of you drawing or playing a haste creature or playing something that pumps up your creatures on the ground and just small little things like that by not knowing if you should be on the offense or defense is going to cost you a lot of games. Or not knowing which one you actually are, mm -hmm. you know, in a given moment in time, or even worse, I think fighting against the flow of the game that is pushing you towards being one of the roles, you know, that, yeah, you started out as one, but you have to realize things are changing and it's time for you to, to change your game plan if you want to win. 
this is where I think players who play a lot of limited probably get a lot of EV because there's a lot of understanding where you are in a game state. And like, uh, am I, if they're attacking, am I just getting some double blocks in here and you're slowly whittling away their board advantage and then turning the corner to rely on some you know flyer or a bomb that I have eventually. And I think that those tactics come into play in any constructed game at all. So anyway, for me, I think the key this year is to really just like slow it down, be present in what I'm doing and just kind of, um, try to go with the flow a little bit more instead of dictating the flow of the game myself when it's out of my control. Good advice in magic and in life, Dave. <laughs> I usually burn pretty hot. I I want to I want to be the river. I don't want to be the rock stand. You know what I mean? Sort of. We call him Dwayne Johnson now, but I want to be the river, not the Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I love kids, Bob. It's, it's funny how all of the things we talked about besides Stan's weird curveball, which is very cool, but the sort of tactical topics we talked about, they all they all meld really nicely. I mean, the whole thing we talked about is like, oh, yeah, that, that fits in with what Zach was saying or what Shane was saying. It's like all these things are about thinking about where you are in a game, whether it's the beginning of the game, you know, in your mulligan, it's your sequencing during the game, it's understanding your role towards the middle of the game or closing that game out without exposing yourself to too much risk. All these things work really nicely together and are components of being a better Magic player. But I will say this, if there's any one of these topics that you heard us talk about today and you want to hear us try to do a whole episode on, whether you want to hear Shane talk about mulligans for 65 minutes straight or hear Zach talk about sequencing some more, um, let us know because I do think that, that any of these could be expanded on. Not stands. <laughs> Join me for my very exclusive budgeting podcast. It's got nothing to do with magic and a lot to do with quick and loans. But until then, we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we'll wind down into some adventures in Europe and beyond. Stay with us. So Stan, you were just like in a longboarding competition. There was like it was like an Isle of Man type thing on cobblestone streets. No, no, Shane, I, I told you three times. It's extreme toboggan sledding. It was like biathlon, but it wasn't the skiing and the shooting. Bionic thalon, God. So Stan, where were you? Shane, I was abroad listening to the dive down. I missed two episodes and I've created a long list of grievances. <laughs> air them, air them. If you ever call it longboarding ever again, <laughs> I walk. <laughs> so I was actually in Amsterdam for about two weeks. Sounds nice. It, you know, it was amazing. It was quite a bit warmer than Chicago. Um, not to mention a much prettier town, in my humble opinion. Um, Dang, shade. But you don't like the, you don't like the, the, the doom gray skies of downtown Chicago. You get used to them, but you don't have to like them. You learn to love them. You guys are native Midwesterners. Listen to you two just bagging. Yeah, I was sent to Amsterdam for work, but whenever I travel, and I think you guys know this about me, I love looking at MTG schedules and finding opportunities to play in local game stores in new places. Oh, yeah. 
So I fly into London on like a Sunday at 9 a.m. because I had a meeting the following day in London. But friend of the show, Emma Partlow, recommended this LGS in London called Dark Sphere. Dark Sphere. Yeah, yeah, it's very intimidating. <laughs> I, I flew in at like 9 a.m., maybe 9.30. At noon that same day, they had a Pioneer tournament. So I did the thing where I took a cab to the hotel, dropped off my bags, and then grabbed some food and went straight to the LGS. Like, basically trying to stay awake and start to recover from the jet lag. <laughs> did the people at the store think you were just like totally out? Like, whoa, I can't believe you came here straight from the airport, basically. They found it kind of amusing, but I wasn't like a zombie or anything. Uh, but Darksphere was a really cool shop. So I just want to give a really quick shout out to that store in London. Uh, I really liked all of my opponents. I really liked the shop in and of itself. It was like a Sunday afternoon win a box, but we were surrounded by people playing Commander, a bunch of people playing Warhammer and uh, the Star Wars figurine X-Wing game. I... Just side note, I love when people are wargaming near me. It's just something that I've always found interesting, but don't have quite maybe the budget or patience or whatever for it. But I love when I'm playing Magic and the distance people are measuring out and moving little miniatures. It's, it makes me feel very happy. I just, I'm trying to imagine you with like a, a, a four foot, like expandable <laughs> ruler being like, um, excuse me, this is. 16th of an inch past its shooting zone. So it's not that I didn't play miniature war games. It's that I had to stop playing miniature war games. And I think we can, that's a discussion for another time. Over the line, market zero. It's an eight, dude. <laughs> market eight. So yeah, so I spent 36 hours in London and then I took a train to Amsterdam where I spent the remainder of the two weeks. That's my favorite Link Leader movie. <laughs> you got roasted. <laughs> Man. The Gen X humor is really thriving in this episode. So in Amsterdam, I got to play in two formal DCI-sanctioned magic events. And one of the cool things about Amsterdam, and I highly recommend anyone who visits who's got some time to play magic to do this, is that they host their FNMs in a board game bar. So you can grab some beers, you can even grab some food, and then you get to play magic in a Dutch bar. And the thing about Amsterdam is everyone speaks English. It's really easy to travel there. So I was there during pre-release weekend. And I went to the pre-release and I got to meet one of our patrons, Stepan, a.k.a. Steve on Slack. Uh, so that was really nice. He was cool. And we got to just talk about being Europeans in Europe. Uh, and likewise, that same night, I met some, some new friends. So, uh, quick shout out to Geert, Hunter, and Yij. Nailed it. Yeah, true Dutchies. Um, they were very friendly to me, uh, and they even invited me to their like art and animation studio in the middle of the week to play some Commander, and they lent me a Commander deck. Oh. And I played Commander with a bunch of strangers, which is... In an art studio in Amsterdam. So European. Yeah, basically, yes. Very the coolest way to play as commander. So that happened. I, I managed to go to one more FNM where I played Pioneer. It, Pioneer basically bookended my two-week sojourn. And I uh, played Blue, Red, and Soul a couple times. Honestly, I just had a great time. And the reason I wanted to even talk about this is just kind of wax poetic a little bit about not only how fun it is to play Magic in new places, 
especially in a more casual FNM type setting than, say, a GP setting. But it kind of reminds me of the gathering element of magic, where is a really good night of magic, especially in a, a new LGS or a foreign place, you kind of walk away feeling like you've made new friends. And that's, I don't know, that's really nice. I, I've got some new contacts in my WhatsApp. When I'm in Amsterdam, I get to hit up some people and be like, hello, <laughs> hello. So that's that. You get to be like, yo, do you still have that Eroes deck for me to play? I was very into his centaur energy. I'll be over at your art studio in five. Haven't you guys done this too? Haven't you played magic in, in foreign places outside of your LGS where maybe you feel most comfortable? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, even early on in the dive down, I, remember I went to L.A. for work. I, I scouted out at LGS. I, I met some people, made some new friends. Let's just like you said, Stan, it's just fun to, to chit chat with people, play some games. Yeah, recently when traveling in Hawaii, I got to play at Da Planet. It was a good time. It was interesting. It's uh, LGSs are really different. Like, it's, it's there's sort of a joke that like Magic players are all the same, and that they're all like very like hard thinking, stone faced, like hmm people. But LGSs are like really different, like wildly different. Like even in Chicago, where me and Stan play, the two we play at regularly are very different. Ultimately, in the end, like they're totally different vibes, and it's just like. For me, something that I'm going to give a helpful tip here because I don't know how to relax and have to give advice at all times. What was really helpful for me was looking up stuff about the LGS before I went to it and like seeing some pictures and like hearing people talk about it online. So like I knew when I went there that like a lot of things in Hawaii, there's like a chill vibe and it's island time. And like I went so I lost my fourth round in modern pretty quickly and went to prize out. And I was like, I was told oh, like we wait till everyone's done. Then like we like prize it out and take our time with it, which is cool and legitimate. But I'm like, I'm a go, go, go city boy. Like I want my two prize packs and it's time for Zach to go. (laughs) But it's just like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm going to wait around for a little bit and make some chit chat with some people. And like, it was cool. I got to learn more about somebody. Got to talk to a fan of the podcast. It was pretty cool, but it's just different, right? And it's, you know, preparing yourself to go. When you put yourself out there or like try new things, it can already be hard. So sometimes it can be helpful to, know what you're getting yourself into so your expectations can be tempered a little bit. You know what the hardest thing for me is? It's figuring out the dang schedules. Sure. Like <laughs> when they're actually playing Pioneer or Modern, it's like I got to find it on the Facebook. Maybe they have a calendar on the website. It's just really tough. I'm making a lot of phone calls. It's always on the night I'm not there. I got to say, I've I've almost never been burned by the schedule on the Wizards of the Coast website. Under like the store locator. Well, then I got to go there. Yes, I know. It is a burden. In general, I find calling really helps. And like I called a few other stores while I was in Hawaii looking to play a game. And I got told both times, well, we have modern, but it's probably not going to fire. And usually we just do Pioneer instead. And it was, oh, okay. Well, thank you for letting me know. I did not bring a Pioneer deck. So I hope you have a great Pioneer event. <laughs> and then I found one place that's like, oh, yeah, for sure on Friday we do modern. And like, okay, cool. An employee there told me that. So I'm going to show up. Yeah, so what did you say the shop in, in Hawaii was? The Planet? The Planet. D-A. And then Space. Planet. It's it's an interesting space. They do a lot of Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh stuff as well. It's not too far from like Waikiki and like downtown Honolulu in general. I was able to walk there from the zoo. It was a little bit of a hike, but I made it. I like walking. But I'd recommend it. It was a very chill place to play. And like, I... At one point, a gentleman asked me to hand him the water, and later they turned out to be the owner of the store. So it's just everyone is so very chill in Hawaii. So there you have it. If you're ever in Hawaii, check out The Planet. If you're in London, check out Dark Sphere. And if you're in Amsterdam, check out Tuklaverin. But for now, 
that wraps up this week's show. So happy to be back here with my boys. Oh, it's nice. It's nice recording seeing your faces. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcast, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, pick our brain in something in modern or pioneer, even chat with us about the guests that we bring onto the show, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, directly and financially, you can join our Patreon. We're joining at any tier, gets you access to our super secret Slack channel, and you can chat with us while we are at work doing our nine to fives. You can find that over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word to get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and self-reflect!